Welcome to the Opioid Voices podcast. I'm Amanda Hiraishi, the executive producer. Opioid Voices is part of the American Opioid Project, a crowdsourced encyclopedia of the opioid crisis that will help the public understand how the crisis was experienced in all 50 states from a variety of perspectives. Share your story today by visiting www.americanopioid.org. The following interview is with Rich Lord, a journalist at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. This interview was conducted by Jamal Khan and took place on September 27, 2018. Uh, hi, Rich. This is Jamal Khan from the American Opioid Podcast. Hey, uh, Jamal. How are you doing? Uh, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fine, thanks. Yeah. Uh, is this still a good time to talk? Yep, let's do it. Sure. Yeah. It's been a kind of crazy day, but that's all right. So if I sound a little frazzled, please forgive me. But uh, yeah, let's talk. Okay, cool. Sounds good. Uh, I, guess, uh, I guess to start off... Um, Maybe, I guess it would be helpful for the audience if you gave us a brief description of your background and sort of your current uh, beat that you cover. Sure, and, and just to, to be uh, so I know what, what, what we're doing, are, are we going to record this? Is this going to be something that you would draw from for the podcast, or how do you, how do you work? Um, how do you do your thing, I guess? Oh, sure. Uh, so what I'm doing is uh, uh, when I do an interview, uh, once the interview is done, then uh, I have a uh, – uh, transcript of the interview uh, sort of, uh, you know, typed up. And then uh, what I'll do with that, then I send it to the interviewee in case the interview to sort of look over in case they want to make any edits or changes or things like that. Uh, and then uh, once I have that approval, then I put the transcript on the interview, uh, on the podcast website. And uh, if I end up using any segments of audio uh, for a podcast episode, then I also sort of I will also run the audio by the interviewee to get their approval. Okay, that's cool. Uh, can't ask for more than that. And are, are, you, are you recording now? Uh, is it okay if I record? Yeah, sure. I don't care. So. Okay, cool. Great. All right. Um, okay, uh, do you have any uh, any additional questions? Nope. That's that more than answered them. I appreciate your candor. Thank you. Okay, great. Thanks. Um I guess, I guess uh, if you start off, uh, maybe, uh, if you gave us just a, a brief description of your background and sort of uh, the current beat that you cover. So, sure. Uh, I've been uh, doing journalism in Pittsburgh for uh, 22 years, and um, I'm currently the um, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette's investigative reporter and investigative editor, um, and I lead teams that um, do longer-term projects here at the Post-Gazette. Uh, we started looking at the opioid problem as a, with a, you know, the Post Gazette's been covering the opioid problem since uh, 2011 pretty intensively, but in about late 2015, we decided that we needed to um, ramp up our coverage a lot more, and we uh, dedicated a team, first of all, to looking at how doctors participated in the uh, roots of the opioid epidemic and also uh, to look at how uh, our state versus other states responded to overprescribing, which, of course, kind of 
was what primed the pump for the uh, for the heroin problem that we have now and the fentanyl problem. Uh, so in, in late 2015, started dedicating most of my time to covering opioids and really ran through uh, June of this year covering opioids um, with probably the bulk of my time, uh, mostly in team, uh, in team projects. So I wouldn't be the only reporter. I'd be working with uh, multiple reporters and also visual artists and an editor, uh, Donna Eyring, has been my editor on the opioid effort. And uh, then I haven't covered it so much in the last couple of months because been transitioning to a few other topics, but really spent more than two and a half years primarily working on the opioid effort. Okay, great. And uh, so, so I guess uh, around how long uh, has, has it been, like during the time when you guys started really ramping up and uh, you know, covering the opioid crisis more in depth, like for for what length of time? Like, you know, we we upgraded. We sort of went in two phases. In 2011, we revealed we we realized what was going on. I mean, heck, some of us had realized it earlier. I I had uh, I live on a street in one of the um, more opioid um, troubled neighborhoods in the city. Uh, in which, you know, people started arguing about who ate the last pill back in, you know, maybe 2004, 2005. I started seeing pills all around me on my block and, uh, we weren't, um, we weren't, uh, blind to that as a newspaper and we were covering, um, the opioid problem, particularly the pill problem, uh, during that period from, say, the early 2000s to 2011, more as an, um, more as a news story when, when, when Daily News presented itself. Then in 2011, the paper kind of did a, uh, faces of the, of the heroin, uh, uh, epidemic project, which really, uh, raised the awareness of, uh, of how heroin was, um, was on the rise in our region. And that was kind of one up, one ramping up. And then in 2015, we, we approached it as a sustained project of our, um, of our investigative team. So that was yet another kind of ramp up. And right now we're uh, kind of trying to figure out where to go next uh, with with, uh, with our coverage. Okay. I noticed that uh, in uh, some of your coverage, uh, you know, there was someone who, I guess one of your interviewees, who described what was happening as a social contagion uh, where it was, um, you know, the, the opioid crisis seemed to be a symptom of larger social problems that were happening uh, in those neighborhoods. Um, and I guess that, you know, I guess it's interesting to think of it in that way that, uh, you know, the opioid crisis, it's not like these were, you know, I guess, uh, like neighborhoods that were already very affluent and uh you know, and, and then the opioid crisis just came in. Like there were pre-existing problems that appeared to make these neighborhoods more susceptible to the opioid crisis when it arrived. Uh, I guess uh, you know, is, that, is that sort of an accurate characterization? Uh, or yeah, you know, that, I think that that social contagion language came from Ralph Tarter from the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy, who has studied this for uh, probably forty years. Has studied the addiction done all these longitudinal studies, and when we kind of embedded ourselves in the most um, 
overdose-plagued neighborhoods of Pittsburgh, uh, that kind of seemed to ring true. And these were areas that um, had been, um, you know, back back in the back before the 1970s. Uh, people who worked in the mills would make some money and then move away from the mills into these neighborhoods, kind of up the hill from the mills, and uh, they became uh, relatively affluent but also working-class neighborhoods. And then when the mill mills closed, of course. Uh, the, their their kids could not follow kind of the generational march into the mills that had characterized Pittsburgh for um, you know over a century, and some of them kind of drifted. You know, there was a sense in some of these neighborhoods of reduced opportunity and purposelessness. Uh, and meanwhile, you had uh, changes in public housing, which uh, caused folks who were in public housing complexes to be dispersed throughout um, neighborhoods, uh, and that changed the uh, the drug markets dramatically. You also had the 2008 mortgage meltdown, of course, which created a whole bunch of cheap properties in some of these neighborhoods. They were snapped up by some unscrupulous landlords who didn't really care who they were renting to or what was going on in their properties didn't care about maintaining their properties or paying their taxes. So these neighborhoods were kind of hit by a bunch of things all at once. And then you throw in the flood of pills that, of course, uh, beset the country uh, throughout the 2000s. And you just had, uh, I guess, a recipe for for addiction that spread from, from user to user. And we would hear many stories of folks who, of course, started with a prescription, but then many other stories of folks who um, had been introduced to heroin or to opioids or in, in pill form or to heroin by a friend um, who'd been in similar kind of circumstances and faced similar prospects and similar sense of, of um, if not hopelessness, at least purposelessness. Uh, so, yeah, that social contagion language kind of rang true. It wasn't my turn, but I certainly felt like it was uh, uh, reflected what I was seeing. And uh, so, what was the toughest article that you had to write um, in the course of your reporting? In terms of emotionally toughest, or just plain logistically most difficult? Uh, I guess uh, either one. Um, certainly the kind of emotionally toughest, I don't know if you've seen it, um, we, was it was a follow-up story actually. We, we did a, a, a story called Riding OD Road, uh, which looked at, um, the opioid problem along a, a road called Brownsville Road in Pittsburgh's, uh, southern neighborhoods. And as part of that, we got to know a guy named, uh, Gary Fisher. And Gary was a really, uh, eloquent voice. He was um, when I first met when I first saw Gary. Uh, he was sitting on a um, on a curb, recovering after having been uh, hit with naloxone, I think four times by police, and given um, CPR by a police commander who had come across him on the side of the road. And Gary um, recovered from that, and I ended up meeting him um, the next day after that near death experience. And I got to know him over the course of, um, I think, four interviews, four formal com- long conversations, 
but also a lot of phone conversations and, of course, texts and all that, too. And Gary told us uh, that that was his 14th non-fatal overdose. Um, we pulled all his paperwork, all, his, all every public filing related to Gary, and I can tell you that that was not an exaggeration. Um, and then Gary was the first person who was in fragile, super-duper fragile recovery who agreed to go on record with us, which was a huge breakthrough because we needed people to go on record in order to make this real to our readers and in order to make their accounts credible. Um, and then we published Gary's story on, I think, November 2nd. At least that's when it went online. And uh, we didn't hear much from Gary afterward. We were a little worried. We had a hard time reaching him. Um, we didn't know whether he was upset at the story or not. Uh, and then the le next thing, uh, four weeks after the story was published, I got a text saying, hey, uh, Gary Fisher, age 29, has, uh, has, has died, according to uh, the medical examiner's uh, press releases. And, uh, you know, every day they release a, a list of the, 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 the deceased uh, who, have, uh, who've, who the medical examiner has, has gone to, uh, to investigate. And there was Gary's name. Uh, and he had indeed fatally overdosed, um, I think it was on November 30, which was a really kind of uh, difficult uh, piece of news for our team. You know, we had kind of come to believe that just by showing up in people's lives and, and caring as we do and did um, and asking questions and talking about recovery that we might be serving as like a little bit of a catalyst and helping them to um, two inch toward um, recovery, uh, but you know Gary's death kind of put that in perspective. We, yeah, it was nice that we showed up and that we cared and uh, and were respectful and asked a lot of questions. But you know, a bunch of curious journalists showing up was not a counterweight to um, to addiction. Mm -hmm. It didn't save Gary. Uh, other people with whom who we got to know pretty well. Uh, you know, some have bumped around in, in and out of recovery uh, since then, um, and others have uh, done poorly and ended up incarcerated. Uh, I think Gary's the only one we really got to know who, you know, fatally overdosed uh, after we got to know them. So that was emotionally the toughest. They were all tough logistically just because, obviously, you have to uh, – there are ways to identify people who have heroin problems through – you know, public filings, uh, police complaints, non-fatal overdose reports, et cetera. You know, you can find them, you can knock on their doors, but then in order to um, get them to share their stories in a way that's going to be meaningful to the public, it takes a, a, a relationship-building process that often takes months. And, you know, most newspapers don't, don't allow you to spend months building a relationship on spec, not knowing whether it will ever result in, 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 a, in a story. But ours did. Was there anything that you came across in the course of your reporting that changed your perspective on the opioid crisis? Well, yeah. I mean, my perspective on um, on opioid users dramatically changed. Uh, I mean, I I grew up re reading, for some reason, interested in heroin addiction from a, an early age. You know, reading stories and books about it and um, I had I think I came up with the view that 
being a heroin user would be relatively simple. You know, you think of train spotting or something like that where, you know, these folks just, uh, you think that they just, you know, get up and from the moment they wake up, all they're thinking about is how to get their drugs. And that's kind of the public perception that almost like uh, a zombie-like, I guess, um, quest for uh, for a high or at least for relief. But what we found out from people like Gary and Dana and... Um, and Glenn, who I don't know if you read the, the Glenn story because it was separate, is that um, these folks lead extremely complex lives, and they're oftentimes not um, entirely in the throes of addiction. They're oftentimes kind of bouncing between use and various stages of recovery. Uh, they're often struggling with insurance issues, transportation issues, childcare issues, um, most of the time, they're either working or trying to find work or scraping together money in a variety of ways, uh, legal and not legal. Uh, they just lead incredibly complicated lives. And also, a lot of them are really smart, and um, I think the public perception is otherwise, but you know, we met folks who had um, years of heroin use under their belts and uh, and were very fragilely recovered who could speak uh, about brain chemistry and <laughs> in ways that I don't I don't know if many neuro neurologists could uh, could match it uh, because their understanding of what was going on in their minds was so uh, was so deep they had studied what was occurring and they it was it was astounding sometimes how smart some of these folks were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that one of the articles uh, looks at uh, a woman who did really well in school, got straight A's, uh, but then ultimately became addicted, and sort of the impact on her family. Uh, so I guess that's the kind of article that you know can sort of, I guess, subvert like stereotypes about. The kinds of people who do get addicted, right? Because you know, absolutely. I mean, the Danielle Walker story. Uh, it, it you know described a number of people's different paths, I guess, and the way it played out in in, in three different families. But right, Danielle came from um, a good family. Uh, you know, heck, a lot of families are good, but this a family with with two attentive parents, both of whom were were. Um, had careers and a super nice house in the uh, actually in the suburb that I grew up in, South Park, and uh, you know, no indication of childhood trauma. You know, you hear so much about trauma and addiction. Well, if Danielle suffered from some kind of trauma, we we did not, you know, find that, um, and yet she, you know, was sucked as deep into this thing as anybody we we we'd ever come to know about, uh, and. That story was kind of remarkable because we um, we had the uh, I guess good fortune of being able to um, be there when uh, Danielle's mother met with and questioned the man who was present for Danielle's fatal overdose and who moved Danielle's body following that overdose, which was just a remarkable and searing encounter. Uh, uh, and you, you could you could not leave that encounter or watch that video without feeling uh, for both sides uh, 
obviously the mother who lost her daughter and, and was just almost radioactive with grief for, for weeks and months after that, but also the man who moved the body so that he could have a chance to reunite with his own daughter, uh, he thought, and uh, who whose uh, life was going to be, I guess, uh, shadowed by that act um, from here on out. Right. Uh, do you feel that the opioid crisis is slowly improving in your area, or do, or are there still some significant challenges ahead? The experts are telling us that, uh, although you can't can't say too much until all the toxicology reports come in on the year, of course, uh, that the fatal overdose numbers are down in our region and have actually started been trending down gradually since early 2017. Uh, and of course, that's the metric that is most easily uh, tracked. Mm -hmm. We don't know whether uh, that is caused by, uh, you know, more naloxone being available, and therefore more people being saved following uh, an overdose, or whether it's related to changing mixtures of heroin and, and fentanyl, which perhaps are safer than the mixtures that were flying around here in um, 2016 and, and early 2017 uh, or, you know, whether uh, there could be another another reason for uh, the reduction in deaths. Um, maybe it's maybe it's less use overall. We, we just really don't know. Um, I don't get the sense that use is down as much as overdoses are down, if indeed use is down. I think there's a perception that word has gotten out and that uh, the um, certainly the flow of prescription narcotics has has been reduced in our area. Both of the major insurers have reported double-digit decreases in um, reimbursements for, uh, for opioids. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that there was a period when you would see uh, young people uh, introducing each other to heroin and heroin being kind of um, a sort of hip in a in a in a bad you know in maybe a Lou Reed kind of way you know um, but, but maybe that's been reduced. Um, I have two late teenagers who, uh, to my knowledge, haven't haven't seen uh, prescription opioids um, or heroin in their social circles. Uh, so, you know, maybe we're seeing um, the beginnings of an end, but we still have a hell of a lot of use out there. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the most? What was the single most memorable experience that you had while covering the opioid crisis, whether it was something you observed or something that you heard someone say that stuck with you? Uh, well, I mean, I think I alluded to one of them that's just that's really seared into my memory, the encounter between uh, Donna Walker and uh, and Vinnie Zeidelman. Um, and if you want me to, I could provide a little background on it. Um, you know, Donna had lost her daughter, Danielle, to an addiction, uh, no, to an overdose, I'm sorry, in uh, December of 17. And um, Vinny was the person who, in whose apartment uh, Danielle overdosed. And Vinny uh, eventually admitted to moving Danielle's body 
uh, out rather than calling 911, then he moved Danielle's body out into the um, little little pathway next to his house and then had somebody else call 911 when she was long, cold, and dead. And uh, we were there when uh, Donna met Vinny and interrogated Vinny about the uh, his decisions not to call 911 and instead to move uh, Danielle's body. And Vinny explained that he had lost uh, custody of his daughter because he had overdosed uh, a number of months before, and he had feared that if police and medics showed up to um, address an overdose in his apartment, that that would affect his custody uh, effort, and he would never get access to his daughter again, or never get custody of his daughter again. And so he had moved Donna's daughter in in a, I think, misguided effort to improve his case with his own daughter, which was a just a shocking kind of moment to just see them um, go back and forth about that set of circumstances. I'd put that up there. I mean, there were a lot of things that we we learned and, and a lot of people we met that are really memorable, but that was a kind of just a, the raw emotion of that moment was kind of unforgettable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed that in the media, you know, like mostly on TV, you know, there are sound bites that will focus on statistics like overdose deaths and the economic cost of the crisis. And I was struck by your coverage that just the level of detail that it goes into and how it really tries to get into into the minds of the people you're interviewing and, and look at things from their perspective. Uh, it almost kind of read like a novel. Uh, and I, I was curious about, like, did you start off with that in mind to to go into that level of detail or was that something that just kind of came in over time as you began to, uh, uh, you know, interview more people and, and, and in a more in-depth way? I think that when we embedded ourselves in the in the most affected neighborhoods of Pittsburgh, which really started in July of 2017, um, we intended to treat those neighborhoods themselves as characters. And uh, and but but I don't think we knew that we would be able to develop the kinds of relationships that we that we did in that set of stories or in. Uh, the latter stories um, this year, like the Danielle story, uh, because you know it is hard as a reporter to call the mother of someone who fatally overdosed uh, a couple of days before and and do a thirty five minute phone conversation with with them with that person and try to write a story it's just it's just emotionally hard to do that. and it doesn't get the job done because you know what it doesn't capture. The um, the person who the user let's just say the u- it doesn't capture the user as a full human being it doesn't allow the reader to experience that user's life in a way that um, brings home their humanity it does not convince the the reader that this could happen to their own children their own brothers and sisters their parents or themselves um, and I think that's what we pretty quickly set out to do when we, um, after we got into 
that that project. We really wanted people to realize that this isn't somebody else. This is us. Uh, there's no other way to do that except for show up. Nobody takes you seriously as a reporter or as a person until you show up for about the third time. And in some cases, we had to show up a dozen times before we got the depth of understanding that we wanted to we wanted to get. Right. And we were really lucky because our our paper supported us uh, on doing it doing it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess you know, given everything that you've seen in your reporting. Uh, if somebody gave you a magic wand that allowed you to change any policy in order to more effectively alleviate the opioid crisis, uh, which policy would you zero in on? Um, well, I think that's a hard thing to say. Part of me wants to say that I would want to reduce the barriers to uh, like buprenorphine and the medically assisted treatments because in some other countries and places they're so much more accessible than they are in our country and in our and in Pittsburgh um, and I do I know people now who have been successful in maintaining their recovery and being extremely um, responsible and helpful citizens for a decade or more um, while using, you know, buprenorphine, um, I don't know that buprenorphine is the answer for for everybody, though. So I, I I'm very sensitive to the, the the side of the recovery community that worries that um, lifetime use of buprenorphine is not an answer because uh, it doesn't address the underlying, uh, I guess, pathologies of addiction. Uh, but I'd also say that if I could wave a uh, a wand and eliminate kind of the what's the right word the indifference in some sectors of uh, of our of our city to this issue, um, then that that might be better than changing a policy. I mean, we have, for instance, a um, post overdose response team. Uh, theoretically in place in the city of Pittsburgh, which is supposed to go to um, people who have recently experienced, obviously, non-fatal overdoses within a week of that event and try to um, gently leverage them into treatment or at least address problems in their lives that might get them toward treatment. Uh, But that has gone nowhere, essentially, because uh, the public sec- public safety personnel have just not taken the steps necessary to to implement that team they 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 just when they show up for the overdose they are not doing what they're supposed to do to activate that team i'd love to change that <laughs> you know <laughs> that sounded like that sound you know, the post overdose response team approach has worked in some places like cincinnati i'd love to see it work here it wouldn't require waving a wand and changing a policy it would require waving a wand and getting people to execute the policy. Okay. And I guess in in general, do you feel that the Pittsburgh uh, political leadership, I guess, you know, the mayor, the administration, the police department, uh, do you think that they're, uh, like, in tune with 
sort of the what's happening with the opioid crisis in Pittsburgh, like that they're connected to it, or do you feel like uh, there's kind of a gap in, I guess, awareness? The city and county leadership are aware and in tune, not always as um, the follow-through is not always what one might hope it would be. Sure. Um, they're not dismissive of this problem, um, but like I mentioned with that post-overdose response team, they are at times um, lacking in follow-through. They might propose something that sounds absolutely great, and then you check back in six months and virtually nothing has has happened. There are some dedicated people in the middle ranks, uh, both in the city and in the county. Um, we also have a wildly fragmented system of government here in which we have 130 different municipalities in one county. And oh, wow. so dedication to uh, this issue, just it's like a checkerboard, you know. Uh, it's worse, heck, there's only 64 spaces on a checkerboard. Um, dedication to addressing this issue just varied really wi widely among our municipalities. Um, uh, in addition to your reporting, uh, what resources would you recommend to members of the public who would like to know more about the opioid crisis? This is an easy pick, but obviously the book Dreamland was amazing. Uh, it just captured how this played out in the economy of, you know, in the lives and also the economy of, uh, of small town and small city America. Uh, so that would be, that'd be my big recommendation. I haven't honestly watched too many of the documentaries. I know there are many that have been done on this subject just because I've spent too much time in the, in the streets working the stories and I just don't want to watch anything more, you know. But, um, but yeah, Dreamland was a fantastic resource. Okay, great. Um, so I think I think that's all the uh, questions that I have. Um, were there any other, I guess, additional thoughts or ideas that you would like to share? No, I think I uh, I, I think you you did a good job of um, getting the best <laughs> best thoughts out of me, I guess. Um, and um, I'm happy though to help more if 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 you need me. So yeah, just let me know. Okay, great. Um, yes, I'll just get this uh, interview transcribed and then uh, I'll follow up and then uh, I'll continue to be in touch. But uh, I really appreciate, uh, you know, just, you know, your coverage. Uh, you know, there's a saying that good journalism makes the important interesting. And I think just the way that, you know, your coverage, just the way it's been written is, has just been, uh, it, it really, I think, grips the reader and it really uh, immerses the reader into you know, that world and what the people in it are experiencing. Uh, and so I appreciate that very much and uh, and also the insights that you provided uh, in this interview as well. So. Well, thank you so much for that because that obviously we came to care about this issue and the people about whom we were reporting and we, we just really wanted to do it justice. So we, my team, um, I mean, my photographers, Steve and Stephanie and others, uh, just really put everything into this, and I'm just glad it came through. Thank you for that. Thank you. Great. So, uh, well, thank you so much, and uh, I'll, I'll be in touch. Okay. Hey, thanks, Jamal. Appreciate this. Thanks. Goodbye.
Thank you for listening to the Opioid Voices podcast. I'm Amanda Hiraishi, the executive producer. Opioid Voices is part of the American Opioid Project, a crowdsourced encyclopedia of the opioid crisis that will help the public understand how the crisis was experienced in all 50 states from a variety of perspectives. Share your story today by visiting www.americanopioid.org.